Hey, so good morning. Uh, it's so great to have our guest here. We are especially glad to have guests with us today. I have a message that is for the entire church family. So um, with Travis out and a timely message, uh, we're going to look at David and Bathsheba today. And uh, so I'm so glad that you're here. A timely and a very important message for our whole church family. So uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever played that game? Um, some call it gossip. Some people call it telephone, I think. It's where you whisper into somebody's ear and then you tell them a story and then they go to the next person. They have to say what they thought they heard you say and it's so long or something. They can't quite remember it. By the time you get to the last person in the circle or down the line, they'll, t- they'll say what you know, the story is and the first person is like, that's not at all what that's not how the story goes. You know, there might be some same words, same thoughts and themes, but that's not even how the story goes. I wonder if you've ever felt that in your own life. I think all of us have, if you think about this, in varying degrees. Like, this is not the way the story goes. Whether it's, you know, vocational or in relationships, maybe spiritually, this is not the way the story is supposed to go. Something is wrong. And I know that we see this in our culture as well. Uh, Of course, the Bible would affirm that, that that the story has been hijacked um, because we have sinned against the one who's writing the story, but he's so sovereign and powerful that he keeps drawing us back even still to accomplish, and he will accomplish his purposes in this big storyline that we call life here on earth. And so today what I want to do is talk about where I think this story has gotten off track as much as any place in our culture, and that's in the area of sex, all right? Sexual behavior, sexuality. I want to talk about sex, and the minute I say that, uh, some of us blush a little bit. Some of us get a little nervous. Some of y'all are a little nervous for me right, right, right now. Like, what's, what's Jeff going to say? What's he not going to say? It's why we wanted to give you an option as parents, to have your children in the room or not. I think it's important that our kids hear this. You can't get through far, you know, too far in the Bible, and you see that sex is, is a big theme that runs throughout the Bible. This is why we, as a church, as God's people, need to talk about it, because God does. And if we're not talking about it, if we're not whispering uh, what's happening, no, no, the world is shouting the story of sex from a worldly standpoint. And today I want to shout the story, God's story of sex. In this year of the Bible, we've seen that, man, sex starts in the first couple chapters, first chapter of Genesis. And what I'm going to show you, that, that it runs really throughout the whole redemptive arc of history, all the way to Revelation. And so this is not a small topic. It's right at the core of our story. So I want to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. And I'm going to use that story as a springboard from which we're going, to, we're going to compare and contrast the world's way up against God's way. The world's story against God's better story of sex. So I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David was a great king. Okay, so while you're turning there, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. He was the great king during the golden era of Israel's history, right? He was born about 1000 BC and uh, he was the great king. King David. Now, um, we know him best, most people that don't know the Bible, maybe, you know the story of David and Goliath. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but this is probably the second most famous of his story, infamous stories. And how, here's, here's the first question. How would you like for your life, yikes, for me to be known for the worst thing I've ever done in my life? 
Now, some people are known for that. Um, but by the grace of God, not all of us are, right? That's a terrifying thought. And yet, here's David's personal private sin comes out in the open. And everybody knows about it. Here we are talking about it today. It's like somebody reading your email, seeing where you've been online, looking at your story, having a camera in every and in the worst moment of your life. But here's the question I want to ask when it's all said and done. How in the world can David be called a man after God's own heart? Because we see it there in Acts 13, 22. We saw it in 1 Samuel 13. It says that uh, in Acts, it says that God removed Saul. He put David there as king and he testified about him. God says this. I found David the son of Jesse, he's a man after my heart, a man after my own heart. He will do all of my will. Now, again, here's what I want to do. I want to look at this story, and we're going to compare and contrast. So in chapter 11, uh, verse 1, here's how it starts. In the spring of the year, and then watch this, the time when kings go out to battle. Okay, so all the kings and soldiers went out to battle the Ammonites, and it says, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this is the first lesson for us. David is not where he is supposed to be. Now, parents, this is how we talk to our kids, but this is good for adults as well. You're going to sin when you're not where you're supposed to be or when you're not supposed to be there. We used to tell our kids all the time, they can still hear it echoing in their minds, nothing good happens after midnight because that's generally the case. So you can determine, you know, um, your curfew for your kids, but you need to stand firm because there are times and places you don't need to be. But then watch what, watch what happens here in, in verse 2. It says, it happened. It's, it's, the, it's the story he's telling. There's a, there's, a, there's a storyteller, and he says, here's how this went down. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, his palace, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, one of the messengers said, this is, this is Bathsheba. Is this not Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So look at this. David knows her name. Uh, he doesn't know anything else about her. He knows her name. He knows that she's married, and he knows who she's married to. Now, he may not remember, may not know, that Uriah is actually one of David's mighty men. These are the men who risked their lives to protect the king in 1 Chronicles 11. Uriah is one of those men. And so David knows this much. Don't know if he knows that or would know all of his mighty men. But he knows that she's beautiful and he wants her for that reason. He wants her for one reason alone. This is the epitome of the Me Too, Me Too movement, right? Hashtag Me Too. This is, the, this is power gone mad, is what this is. This is a person in power leveraging their influence to get what they want. He doesn't know her name. I mean, he doesn't know her at all. He's never met her. He just knows he's seen her body and he wants her. This is objectification from a man who has power. This is toxic masculinity. It says in verse 4, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. This is a ceremonial washing during her cycle. She wasn't just out there parading around hoping somebody's going to see her. This is not consensual. In verse 4, it says they took her, 
Some commentators note they would have been armed guards going on behalf of the king. Takes her, brings her to himself. They have sex, okay? That's a nice way of saying he rapes her. And then it goes on. What, what, What does David do now? You know, how in the world could he have done this? A king with one of his subjects. I'll tell you how. Uh, he's a sinner, just like you and me. Sin, that's, that's why he does this. And this is where it's good to pause for a moment and say, every single one of us are capable of this kind of sin. And you say, well, I'm not in power. I can't leverage my power that way. No, no, no. The sinful uh, heart of the human race is such that any one of us can go there and do evil things, things that we can't even imagine. We all want to be like Adam and Eve, take the apple and say, I'll determine for myself what is right or wrong regarding my sexuality. In fact, it is my sexuality. I'll determine what I want to do, and I'm going to do my thing. Okay, so why does this happen to so many leaders? This is an interesting kind of sub-question that I've thought about a lot through the years. Why is it that so many of my pastor friends or people in high offices in politics, why do so many fall into temptation and sin and often men falling into sexual sin? Why is that? Is it that we just know these people in high positions, they get on the news and it just happens across our culture? I think there's some of that. But here's what's going on. See, leaders carry much on their shoulders. I mean, and the higher you are in leadership, the more you carry. And leaders sacrifice a lot in their role. And, and, and they get a lot of criticism. And, and they give so much. Your boss, your CEO, the leaders in your organization give so much of themselves to the organization, whether they think they're doing a good job or not. But here's what happens. Deep seeds start to grow. Uh, and, and, and deep inside, the, the seed of self-righteousness starts to grow. But it's an insidious kind of thing. It, it goes something like this. It's, um, man, I work so hard. I mean, I, I, I'm doing so much for these people. Or, you know, and what happens is they're kind of this, I deserve this. So here's what happens. A bribe, uh, opportunity for an affair, okay, sexual exploit, whatever else, starts to rise up. And, and it's like, he, he, you know, he or she is primed and ready for it. I was talking to a pastor. I've had more than one conversation like this um, some time ago. When after he had fallen in, in sexual temptation into a sexual relationship, lost his ministry, lost his family, lost everything, essentially. I'm sitting with him, having breakfast, and he says, Jeff, it, it, it was crazy. I got to a place where I thought, literally, uh, I deserve this. As if God owes me something. He was saying, I'm so upright, so noble, godly. And he was a very godly man and a wonderful pastor. And it was like, man, I've been so committed in all these areas of my life, but wouldn't God just allow me this? And Satan tricked him into believing this, convinced himself that he deserved this, and it cost him everything. This is the way temptation goes. So in verse 5, Bathsheba sends word, I'm pregnant. So you may know what happens next. It happens to all of us. David seeks to cover up his sin. And in my experience as a pastor, where I've gone to men in particular to intervene, I've been with a group of men knocking on a man's door after his wife tells us, me, sorry, that uh, he's having an affair. 
We're going to come confront this brother. So knocking on his door, we go in. And here's what happens, though. 99.9% of the time, a man is going to lie about uh, his adulterous affair, relationship, until he's found out. And even if he's found out, sometimes he tries to lie and sneak his way out. This is what David is doing. But he's got power. He's trying to leverage some power here to make this thing right, or at least to hide his sin. And it will not be hidden. So what he does, he, he has Uriah. He wants him to sleep with Bathsheba. It would be a great thing. He's too noble a soldier, and he won't do it. He gets him drunk. That doesn't work. And then he finally says, you know what? I got one last option. He sends him to the front lines of battle. Uriah is killed in verse 18. We discover he is killed in battle. Then at the end of chapter 11, Bathsheba has a baby. And uh, it seems that no one knows a thing. And then Nathan, the prophet, shows up at David's door knocking. And he starts in with a story. This is interesting, too. He doesn't say, you adulterer, you sinner. He doesn't start with that. He leads. This is really an act of grace. He wants this to come out through David. He wants him to confess. So he tells him a story, a parable. David thinks it's a true story because he thinks that Nathan's come to him, the king, um, to, to uh, you know, adjudicate, to, to, to make a judgment on this case as if to arbitrate a case for him. So he comes and he tells a story. It's a story of two men. One is very poor and he has one little lamb that he has raised from the time it's a little teeny lamb. He's raising this lamb and it says that he became like a child to him and like a, like a little, little, little pet, like a little puppy. Well, this other guy is rich and he has a whole flock of sheep, lamb, and, and he goes after, when the, when the guy comes to town, they're going to have a meal. He takes the one guy's lamb, the one thing he has, he takes it for himself, and he, instead of drawing from his own flock. And, and David is so enraged that he announces a fourfold retribution against this guy in verse 6. This is the Mosaic law, by the way. He's right. This is it. But he also says, this guy deserves to die. Now, that's extreme. That's not what the Mosaic Law says. That's excessive. So what's going on here? This is interesting. found this in my studies. Robert Alter, Dr. Robert Alter, he's a Hebrew scholar and understands um, the Old Testament. He's at UC Berkeley. He writes this. Now, as he listens to Nathan's tale, David's compensatory zeal, his compensatory zeal to be a champion of justice is provoked. All right, so contempt, uh, com, com, compensatory. That's as if uh, a kind of payment. All right, for 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 his own sin. See, because he knows he's guilty. All right, deep down, he is really hacked that this guy has done what he's done. David, by his excessive anger, okay, is what Alder goes on to write condemns himself, and he is now the helpless target of the denunciation that Nathan will unleash on him. See, here's what's happening. When we are sinful in a certain area of life or certain areas of our lives, we will be extremely morally upright, even judgmental, in other areas of our lives. As if, oh, I'm better than you in this area, but uh uh-oh, don't want you to see this area. His compensatory zeal because we're all sinners, and it reveals our guilt when we are overly judgmental and angry at others who sin. That's what's happening a lot of the time. Look at 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Nathan shows up. 
after he tells this tale, he says to David, you are that man. You're that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. You were put here in this role by God. Then Nathan goes on to tell David everything that he's done, exposes his sin across the board. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I mean, he's caught red-handed. And Nathan said to David, the Lord, this is, this is astonishing, by the way, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. That would be David's immediate reaction. He should die. He should be killed. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. You're going to face consequences for your sin, nevertheless. And Nathan went to his house. Wow. Now back to our, our, our confounding question. How in the world can David, how can he be a man after God's own heart? I mean, he's broken half the Ten Commandments in this one episode. Well, let's talk about this. And that's where I want us to land. The world story up against God's better, more compelling story. All right? The world story of sex. Now, again, I would say I'm not sure that the world has a real story of sex. There's not much of a storyline other than I want what I want and I want it now. That's not much of a story. And that story leads to all kinds of heartache, pain, and brokenness, and shame. But here's how it starts. The world's story of sex is that sex is an activity, all right? It's just an animalistic activity between two sexual creatures. God's better story of sex is this. Sex is first an identity. It is an activity, but it's first an identity. Now, this is, this is important to understand. This is interesting. When you look at the history and etymology of the word sex... Up until recently, sex has always meant male or female. If you're filling out a form at the doctor's office or something, are you M or F? That's the way it's been really for centuries. Not until recently have we started to talk about sex as an action. All right? Sex is, is this um, it, it's sexual behavior. All right? And here's what's interesting, too. You look at the word sex, the etymology of the word. In Latin, sex means to be divided in two. It means to separate in two. God creates humankind in two forms, male and female. So humanity is divided in two, right? In Genesis 1, you start, it's right there in the Bible, sex. All right? God created us, male and female, he created. And this is so important because here it is. It's important for us to start here. Sex is identity first. So the primal question is not where and who, how can I have sex, right? I I need more sex. I'm a sexual being and sex is an action. No, no, no. Sex is identity. So watch this. The first question is, the foremost question, how can I live out my, my sexuality? How can I live out my maleness in the way that God's created me? How am I to be a female, a woman, created in God's image? That's the first question. That's whether, you know, right? It's whether uh, you're married or not, whether you're single or not, whether you're young or old. How do I live out my sexuality that God has designed for me? But here's what's cool. This is beautiful. This is not the end game, but this is really something. 
So when the two divided, male and female, come together in marriage, then God says the two become one. What was divided becomes one. That's how powerful sex is. But the world story of sex would tell you this. Sex is inconsequential. Doesn't have consequences. Okay, ask David about that. Sex has great consequences for good or for bad. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. That's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.22. That's a verse I learned when I was like in middle school. 2.22, 2.22. It says flee from youthful lust. Okay, but here's what he says here. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Something is different about sexual sin. And earlier in chapter 6 there, in verse 16, right before that, he says, do you not know that anyone who has sex with a harlot becomes one with her? What is he saying? He's saying, look, sex, the two, become one, but outside of marriage, you're with the wrong person. And, and it's always destructive. God's better story of sex is that sex is consequential. It has extreme consequences for good or for bad. See, sex is like a fire. You take a match, you throw it into the fireplace on a cold winter's night, warms up the whole room, does exactly what it's supposed to do. It is awesome. You take that same match, throw it out you know, on the plains of West Texas out in the middle of August with the, with the wind blowing, and it has devastating results, destructive on multiple levels. And, and, and even, even more, um, sex has consequences regarding our soul because sexual sin is Satan's easiest door to shame. The world story of sex We'll say this, sex is transactional. It's just a, it's a deal. It's an agreement, right? We call it an affair. It's a contractual action. I do this for you. You do this for me. It's what I get. And it's not what I give, but what I want, if we're really honest, see? But God's better story of sex is this. Sex is covenantal. It's not transactional. It's covenantal. Sex is not simply transactional, you know, act between two animals, it's a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Look at this. A male, a female committed for life, loving each other as Christ loves the church. In the context of a lifelong commitment, sex takes place. That is beautiful. Which is the better story? We've got to tell the better story because God's story is much more compelling than the world's story, right? The world's story of sex is this. Sexual purity is an achievement. Now, this is interesting. I want to take a moment here to talk about this. We've come to believe that purity is an accomplishment. And, and, and here's how this, this plays out. We think, I will keep myself pure, or I will make myself pure, as if it's an achievement or an accomplishment, where Jesus says this. Look at this, Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So wait, Jesus is on a different plane here. How pure are you? And, and, and I want to speak to this because one of the ways that we've shared a false narrative is how we've taught our kids, our children, even youth, about what it means to be pure. And I've, I've been kind of guilty of this. Um, and I want you to listen to me carefully. So I was, when I was a youth minister, um, we, we had this whole campaign called the True Love Waits campaign. And so we had kids sign commitments. 
I'm going to wait till my wedding night. I'm not going to have sex till I'm married. That's a great thing, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that campaign. In fact, Stacy and I, raising our kids, we always taught them that. I know you're doing it. You, you, you don't have sex until you're married. In fact, we did the purity rings, you know, talks with our girls, with Travis uh, growing up. And, and we said, look, you, you wait until you're married to have sex. But here's, here's the challenge there. Um, what happens is, and that is God's plan, but, but we've got to think more deeply about this. Because here's what happens. You, you, let's say you make it to your wedding night. Yes, I am pure. I made it. I've crossed the finish line. I am so pure. I'm incredible. It's an accomplishment. I've made myself pure. Really? I mean, you go back to what, what does God require of us? And because what happens, let's be honest. I made it to my wedding night. I, am, I didn't have sex. I almost did, I didn't, didn't really have sex. I was close to not, I was close to Right? I mean, all of us have those kinds of stories, it seems. And yet, we, we get there and we think, I made it. I've made myself pure. But listen, purity is not simply one act over another or not. It's a matter of the heart. And so, if we, how about this? If we fail miserably, if we, okay, we don't make it, then watch this. If purity is an achievement, then once I have failed, then I'm out. I'm done. I'll never be pure again because the goal was to get to marriage. And this is what people do. The goal is to get to, get to the wedding night. I, 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 can't, I failed. I'm going to just fail again. And so we fall into that spiral, that downward spiral. I'll never be pure again. Another way to approach this, how it misses, misses the mark, is this. Some people will never be and don't want to be, may not be married. So is that the goal? Listen, single people, many of us here, the goal, the ultimate relationship is not marriage. Marriage is not the goal. God is. And yes, purity is. Married or not. Seeking sexual purity doesn't end when you get married. In fact, I've known guys who've been married for some time, and then they kick into all kinds of, of sexual you know, misconduct or exploitation or pornography. And so the challenge for, for the single friend, is this, um, you know, here's what happens. We come to our singles and we say, oh, you know what? God has someone really special for you. You're so special. Maybe not. And singles can relate to this. Or, I'm sorry it didn't work out with that person. Uh, God must have someone better in mind for you. No. Maybe not. But here's the point. There's not someone better. God is the one. Who's better? Christ is better. And this is for all of us. We're pursuing Him. We've, some of us made, a, made an idol out of marriage. And, and, and it can be as much an idol as sex can be an idol. Sex is not the main thing. That's not the goal. Christ is the goal. God is the goal. But here's, here's the point. Here's God's better story. Sexual purity is a relationship. It's a result of a relationship with the one who's pure. There's only one who is pure, and it's not you. It's not me. The only way that we can be pure is to have a relationship with Christ who has made us pure by his sacrifice on the cross. He's taken all of our sin. See, only Christ at work in us makes us pure. And when we receive his grace, he has made us 
pure before him. He's not missed any sin. So even the talk of staying pure is a false narrative. Now, I get it. No, set yourself apart. Remain pure. Seek purity. Purity comes only in a relationship with Christ. We need to set ourselves apart. But here, here's a key verse. Here's what I'm, what I'm getting to in a single verse. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself or herself as he is pure. What do I mean to hope in him? It means you receive the gospel. You believe that Christ is who he is. He took your sins upon the cross. Anyone who believes by faith, not your actions, but by faith that Christ died on the cross, took our sins upon himself, all of my impure acts, all of my sexual sin has gone to Christ. He now has forgiven me, makes me pure. That's why we say we've been covered in the blood of the Lamb. We've been totally made pure. Jesus is our only way to purity. He is pure and makes us pure. Purity is a relationship, not an accomplishment. And look at this, the world story of sex. Let's keep rolling. Sex is frivolous. It's shallow. It's, it's MBD. It's no big deal. It's thoughtless. Again, sex has consequences with devastating results, right? But in our culture, this kind of hookup culture, sex is a one-off. It's a frivolous action. It's a destination. But look at this, God's better story. Sex is a stewardship. It's a stewardship. I'm a steward of my maleness, of my sexuality. I'm a steward of my God-given gender, male or female. And as stewards, we must guard what's been entrusted to us. And so we have to work together. You know, we're to do this together. It's why God gives us parents. It's why he gives us the church. It's why he gives us each other. I think of men in my life who keep me accountable, who I'm honest with, who are honest with me. And this is what we must do in the home. And parents, you're given, you're given a task. You, you know, I, I, even now, in my own life, I have accountability in my life with men. I got off the phone this week with a man that I've been accountable to for decades. We talk about everything. I have others in my life like that, but you've got to have people in your life where you can be honest. And so on my, uh, my devices, my phone, computer, I'm accountable to an accountability partner. And look, and, and one of them is my son, Travis. And, and he's accountable to me. I'm accountable, I'm accountable to him because he wants to live a life of purity. And so we can be, we have a thing called accountable to you, the number two. We can give you some resources there. Call our, our family ministry, call our offices or a minister here on staff. We can get you there. Safeguard. You, there's, there's safe eyes. You can, there's triplexchurch.com. That's a thing. Okay. You can do that and you can guard your, your devices. And listen, parents, if you don't have that on devices for your children, I mean, and if they're in middle school, you, you're too late. Come on. You've got to do this. We all need to guard and help each other, right? There's another great resource through a group that we partner with called Pure Hope. They've been here. Uh, Noel Boucher, among others, that, that help have guided us. They have a thing called Quest for Parents. You can go to their website and you see there. Um, there's a podcast, actually, they do that is awesome. And it's, in fact, one is dropping tomorrow, kind of timely, um, with me and my daughter Whitney on it, uh, with the host talking about the father-daughter kind of parent-child relationship and, and pursuing sexual purity together. Um, talking about sex with my daughter. Not awkward, okay? No, and it's not. It's not awkward at all. Of course, she's a young adult now, but we've been talking about this for years. But we've got to have a no, 
uh, tolerance rule for sin and sexual sin. So John Owen said this. He's a British theologian. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I like that. You've got to stay on it. Marriage um, core is another great ministry for you to pursue sexual uh, purity and oneness in marriage together. You can contact David Huey. Um, Debbie Newman Riesling is a great contact. Call one of our ministers. We're here to help you. Jeff White leading our men's ministry. We've got men's groups. Talk to Jeff uh, after the service today. We've got opportunity for you. Be courageous in this, all right, before you become David in this moment. The world's story of sex, here we go, is a destination. Uh, that's what the world would say. It's a, we're just sexual being. It's a one-off. We're objectifying one another. Sex is just, I want what I want. And, and it becomes an idol, really, for many people. It's what I live for. It's what I'm, what I'm targeting. It's what I think about. All that. That's an idol. And Augustine said that sin is disordered desire. That's love out of order, he called it. And, and, and so we've got to understand that, that sex is not simply a destination. There's a larger story. So here it is, God's better story. Sex is a narrative. I want you to get your mind around this. Sex is a story. Sex tells the story within God's better story, the more compelling story of his pursuit of us. Sex is a story inside a story. Even our, our, our maleness and femaleness is a story inside the story. So we've shared this. Uh, when we started this year of the Bible, we talked about the whole arc, the entire arc of redemptive history is, listen to this, it's a man and woman, okay, being created, okay, being married, if you will. God enters into a covenant relationship with his people, right, through the Ten Commandments, a covenant agreement. There's a lot of marriage language that's used around that. They, so we are his people. We're married to God, which is why throughout the Old Testament, which we're reading now, um, the prophets are always talking about idolatry as adultery. This past week, we read out of Hosea, where Hosea actually marries a prostitute to say, this is a picture of me and my people committing adultery. They're harlots is what he calls them, calls us. That's what sin is, going against the one that we've entered into covenant with. The whole arc of redemptive history points to this. And this is why, this is interesting. It came to me this week. The real story here is not that Christ now, you know, right? He comes, the groom, he comes. We're his bride. His people are the bride. We enter into a marriage relationship with him. But watch this. No, it's more remarriage after adultery that we enter into this relationship. That's who we are. We are unfaithful sinners. Christ comes to rescue us. And then this is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, therefore a man shall leave, he's, he's quoting from Genesis 1, and then he says, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and this is for all of us. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here it is, look at this. You're going, wait, I thought you were talking about, you were talking about marriage, now you're talking about Christ and the church, because look at this, marriage is gospel reenactment, is what it is. It's a picture I said it this week. I was renewing the vows. One of our couples in our church, 25 years married. And it was a glorious thing. But, but I, I was noting that, you know, this is a picture, a reenactment of the gospel. And, and the children get a front row seat. And everybody watching gets to see how Christ loves us as we love each other. And single adults, you live out your sexuality and your commitment to Christ by saying, hey, you look at me and you're going to see what it is. For a person to live with Christ as my one and highest love in my life. 
And then all of this is consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see it in Revelation chapter 16, verse 6 through 9. You can see it there. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give, give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. First, he makes us pure, but it says for the linen, then the righteous deeds of the saints, things that we've done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the larger story of all of life. This is where all of history is heading right here. Glorious and wonderful. Friends, there is coming a day when sexual exploitation and brokenness will end, but not in this lifetime. It's going to happen when Christ comes again and establishes his reign on the new earth. And we're going to live with him forever. But here, none of this answers our question. How is it that David could be called a man after God's own heart? Well, it's what he does next. It's what he does next. But look at this. What if... Being pure or being a person after God's own heart is not really about how good I am or how bad I've been. What if in Romans 3, verse 10 and 11, what if it's true? There are none who are righteous, not one. There's none who are pure, not anyone. No one seeks after God. What if our best efforts at purity are actually filthy rags before God? What if Isaiah is right in chapter 64, verse 6? We've all become unclean. All of our righteous deeds, our best efforts at purity and righteousness are just polluted garments. We're just, I mean, we're swept away by the wind. What if it's possible to look upright and moral and actually have evil intent and motive on the inside? What if God looks at the heart and not at the outward appearance? What if he looks at what it means to be pure in a very different way? What if being a person after his own heart is seen by him in a very different way than the way we look at it? Well, you can turn to Psalm 51. I'm going to wrap it up here. We're going to land it like this. Because this is why. This is where all this heads. This is the application today, among many. This is why David's called a man after his, God's own heart. This is the psalm that he writes. You heard it earlier. This is the psalm he writes after he's been confronted by Nathan. This is how we have a heart after God's own heart. First, you admit your guilt. This is what David does, Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Look, he's pleading, knowing that God's love is unfailing. And it is. And so he says, please don't give up on me. I still believe that you're loving and friends, whatever you've been through, you can turn to him. Admit your guilt. You're only as sick as your secrets. This is the most courageous move of all. You come out with someone that loves you and you say, here's what I've done. And then in Psalm 51, 4, against you and you only have I sinned. He said, I've sinned against God. He's not blaming anybody else. He's not, look at this, I'm not justifying myself. I, I'm not blameless. I, I am, I've sinned against you, and it's all on me. Be honest. So embrace his forgiveness. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He says, hey, I'm going to embrace your grace. And then repent of your sin. Turn around is what he does. David shows us the true mark of true repentance. He wants to change. That's the mark. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Please don't take away your Holy Spirit. I cannot do this apart from your power, is what he's saying. And then return to a life of obedience. Get back in the game. Don't let sins of the past keep you from living out a life of purity now, pursuing him. Psalm 51, 12 and 13. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I want, I want the want to. Your spirit gives me that. And then I'll teach transgressors. Look at this. Some of us need to become Nathans in other people's lives. You need a Nathan. You might need to be a Nathan and say, this is wrong. And here's what I know about you. And we're going to bring this out. God has never turned his back on a person who comes to him with this kind of heart, this kind of spirit. Look at this. It says in chapter 51, verse 17. This is where he sums it all up. We'll close with this. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a contrite, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. God has never turned his back on someone who would come to him broken. And just say, Lord, I need you. I bow before you. Friends, listen, none of us have a pure heart. but Because of Christ, we can come into a relationship with him. The story of God tells the story for each of us, male and female, divided, coming together. Watch this. We are separated from God. In Christ, we come together as one with him. We're made right. And we do this in the context of the church and with each other. And we whisper to one another the truth about God's story constantly. And then we shout it from the rooftops. We teach it in our homes that God's story of sex is the more compelling, the better story. And this is true in every area of our lives. So I want you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes with me. And I'm just going to pray over us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to pray. God, I pray that every person here would turn their hearts to you. Help us, Lord, to be contrite and humble before you. And for all that this message has stirred up in our hearts, I pray that we'll deal with that stuff. That we'll come to others. We'll seek help. Lord, help us to be a church that helps one another. I pray for honesty. I pray for a broken and contrite spirit among us as we seek to be the people that you've called us to be. And Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the pure one who has made us pure as we turn to him and are forgiven. Thank you that we can live forgiven. And to your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.